Is occipital nerve stimulation a treatment option for patients with intractable cluster headaches? Could it be the hallmark of a new era of neurostimulation therapy for primary headache syndromes? You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Neurology. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars, and joining me today is neurologist Dr. Peter Goadsby, Director of the Headache Program at the University of California in San Francisco. We're discussing occipital nerve stimulation for patients with intractable cluster headaches. Welcome, Dr. Goadsby. Hi. What is the typical patient that would benefit from occipital nerve stimulation? The typical patient that benefits from occipital nerve stimulation is someone who has so-called medically refractory or medically intractable headache. To stand back from that one second, cluster headache is part of a group of headaches that are now known as the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias because of pain and the so-called cranial autonomic activation, eye watering and redness and nasal congestion and such symptoms. There are three types of TACs, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, that is a cluster headache, proxismal hemicrania and a condition called SUNCT, S-U-N-C-T, which stands for short-lasting unilateral neuralgia form headache attacks with conjunctival injection and tearing. And the reason I mention all three is that we have some experience now and, and published experience with a couple of groups of syndromes where we've done occipital nerve stimulation. So talking first about cluster headache, the cluster headache's relatively rare by general standards compared to something like migraine. So 0.1% or 1 in 1,000 people, it's about as common as multiple sclerosis. So in the neurology world, it's, it's pretty common. A proportion of uh, patients, cluster headache falls into two groups. There are people with what's so-called episodic cluster headache where they get bouts, say, for two months a year where they get two or three attacks a day and then it goes away and chronic cluster headache where they actually don't get a break. Now, bearing in mind that patients with cluster headache will say their pain is the most severe pain they've had. I've never met a cluster headache patient that I thought had the condition who had, has had a worse pain, so that we're talking about quite severe things. A small group of them are intractable to medical treatment, probably in the chronic cluster headache groups, probably about 20%, more or less, and medical therapies fail them. They either, can't, they either can't tolerate them, they don't prevent the attacks, or they don't treat the attacks adequately. So we've been exploring these new types of therapies, and there are two neurostimulation types of therapies. One, you mentioned occipital nerve stimulation, and the other, deep brain stimulation that we could return to. For occipital nerve stimulation, I've had experience now doing it for just on three years. And at the moment, it involves implanting a thin wire stimulator under the skin behind at the base of the skull and running it to a battery stimulator, rather like, a, rather like the stimulators that are used for um, pacemakers, for example. They're relatively small and they sit uh, under the skin. We've had quite a remarkable outcome with that. Um, we just published some follow-up of our patients in the journal Neurology. And a little uh, more than half of them a, were greatly benefited by it, and B, would happily recommend it to one of their fellow cluster headache sufferers. So here we have a non-drug-based way of being able to control something that was otherwise uncontrollable and simply ruining the patient's lives. It's quite an exciting development. How long does the treatment take, typically? What's the duration of the treatment with the occipital nerve stimulation? It's indefinite. That's, I mean point out a downside, but it's a fair downside, a fair downside to point out. You turn the stimulator on, patients divide into two groups. One 
who get a benefit, about a third of them get a benefit, a little bit more get a benefit in the first couple of weeks, even in the first week. And about half of them don't get a benefit for, for some weeks and even months. And we've seen some people not turn their benefit on for three or four months, for example. Now, when the battery runs out, or if they do something to the leads in some way, there's some damage done, then within weeks, your tax return. So while it's great news while it works, I wouldn't pretend it was a cure. It's a way of managing the problem. It's a way of limiting their suffering and a way of returning them to more or less normal life. But it certainly doesn't give them a new brain. And certainly the technology for making sure that the stimulator can continue to work on over the years is important to consider. What percentage of patients get side effects from the occipital nerve stimulation treatment? There's two groups of side effects, you might say. There are mild side effects like some pins and needles or a warm sensation at the back of the head, which properly one records as a side effect, but patients don't really regard it as a problem. The, all the problems arise in side effect terms, in terms around the technology. So if you put in a battery and it runs out after two years, for example, then it's a side effect in the broad sense of the word because the battery has to be replaced. Of course, rechargeable battery technology is coming along to get around that. The biggest practical issue is that the leads, if they're not adequately anchored, and even sometimes if they are adequately anchored and the patient's very active, the leads will move, so-called lead migration, and they have to be moved back and replaced, which involves another, another procedure. The rest, other side effects are relatively small and immediate, so if there's infection around the operation site, obviously that's a problem if the stimulator, if the lead slips so far that it makes a muscle move that you don't want to move, that's unhelpful. But the big, the big problems, as I say, are around battery life and around getting the leads fixed so they don't move about. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special segment Focus on Neurology on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushaz, and I'm speaking with neurologist Dr. Peter Goadsby. We're discussing the use of occipital nerve stimulation to treat intractable cluster headaches. Dr. Goadsby, when the nerve stimulators are implanted, what's the procedure like? How long does it take and what's the cost to the patient? Now, the procedure itself is done largely under the sedation and uh, some uh, local anaesthetic. The best results that I've seen are working with a neurosurgeon who keeps the patient awake for a large part of the procedure so he can make sure the electrodes are placed correctly and then a short general anaesthetic is given for the placement of the actual stimulator pack itself. That The whole procedure takes a couple of hours in, in reality. The patients typically at the moment will come in one day, have their procedure and go home the next day, so perhaps two or three nights in hospital. I can see as the procedures improve that people will, you know, that that will be shortened. It's a relatively short and not particularly troublesome admission. How does this compare to hypothalamic deep brain stimulation? Yeah, hypothalamic deep brain stimulation is the other alternative for patients with intractable, medically intractable chronic cluster headache. Deep brain stimulation was developed on the back of functional imaging studies that we did a few years ago now to show that a crucial part of the brain for the cluster headache process is the back of the hypothalamus. The first studies were done by our Italian colleagues who took those imaging, functional imaging results and placed electrodes in the back part of the hypothalamus. That's more invasive, uh, obviously, because it requires drilling a hole in the head, which is 
are clearly not a routine, not the routine pastime, and passing the electrode into the hypothalamus and deep part of the brain. The results from that are really excellent. They report in some, I mean in summary, about 70% of patients getting substantial benefit from deep brain stimulation. And again, I mean, it's important to think of that in the context of people who are medically refractory to all things basically known to those of us interested in the problem and whose lives are simply devastated by it. So it's not surprising that they will take the attendant risks. The problem with deep brain stimulation is, is what you could already guess. If you drill a hole in someone's head, from time to time you will have a problem. Certainly one patient, one report in the literature in a patient series from Belgium where a patient died with an intracranial bleed after the procedure. Obviously one can have infections. Moving, if the electrodes move and you have to replace them, that's obviously unhelpful. And then there's, of course, the battery technology that I was talking about. So I think of that as a procedure to move to, if the less invasive, simpler and certainly safer, occipital nerve stimulation procedure doesn't work. What's great about this, of course, is that we're talking about a group of people who five years ago simply had no choice other than destructive procedures. Five years ago, we were offering these patients burning of their trigeminal ganglion, so-called thermocoagulation, or indeed cutting the trigeminal nerve going through the back of the skull. And with all the attendant problems of that, loss of the blink reflex, for example, patients were known to have corneal ulceration and indeed lose their eye after the root section procedure, and I've seen such a patient. And, of course, root section has the risk of death, which is obviously not an outcome that we're looking for. So when, when you contrast what we're talking about now, which is, you know, sounds invasive, but it's, it's relatively more straightforward than what these patients were consigned to even five or seven years ago. I think it's important to see it in that context of progress for what's a really disabled group of people. For the concept of occipital nerve stimulation, how did researchers stumble upon this as, as a treatment option? How did it come about? Well, the way we came upon it was that in the laboratory, if you're out looking at nerve cells in the brain that get pain signals from the front of the head, so-called trigeminal innervation, say from the region around the forehead, and pain signals from the back of the head that are supplied by occipital branches at C2 and great occipital, the great occipital nerve, which is the branch of C2, you can show in the laboratory that the inputs from those trigeminal and those occipital nerves go to the same group of neurons, a so-called trigeminocervical complex, which we've been studying for more than 15 years now and understand quite a bit of its anatomy and physiology in the, in the laboratory. So the general principle that you could change head pain by either an input to the trigeminal system or an input to the cervical system and have the same effect comes from that laboratory concept. The second, so the next phase of where this came from was that we did a functional imaging study looking at patients with occipital nerve stimulation who actually, uh, who had responded and their underlying diagnosis was migraine. And what we found in that imaging study was that the brain areas that are active in migraine weren't affected actually by the stimulator, although their pain was stopped. And there was a change in another brain area, the thalamus, when the stimulator was on and the, patient, and the pain was gone away. So we reasoned that because the occipital inputs in the front and the trigeminal inputs go to the same group of neurons, and because the functional imaging data suggested that the occipital nerve stimulation wasn't altering the underlying disorder so much as changing the way the brain interprets the signal, that is turning the pain signal off, so to speak, 
that it should work in other forms of primary headache like cluster headache, and indeed it does, and uh, other conditions like hemicrania continua, an indomethacin-sensitive, quite disabling form of headache, and indeed we've, uh, we've just published uh, at the end of last year in Lancet Neurology on our six patients that we inserted with that. So it's, it actually has come a little bit more than stumbling, but come from uh, taking a basic experimental anatomical and physiological observations in the laboratory and then translating them through functional imaging into a new therapy. So it's, uh, there has been a little bit of logic there. What further research goals do you have in this area? There are two things I'd really like to do. I'd like to understand better how occipital nerve stimulation does what it does, how it works, how it modifies pain signals, so to speak, that the patient normally has. I think that's a tractable problem. And the second thing I'd really like to know clinically is how to judge who will respond. So I'm very happy with two out of three people, more or less, who respond to occipital nerve stimulation. That's great, and they're happy as well. But the one out of three who don't, it's difficult to work out why that is simply by simply clinically by at the moment as far as as far as I can see. We do have some indication that medication overuse with analgesics or triptans, for example, is not helpful in terms of having occipital nerve stimulation work. But I think there's a lot of work to do in understanding how to best pick the patient so we can make sure that the people who are going to benefit from this get the benefit as soon as possible. And those who simply, in whom we would actually be wasting their time, don't have their time wasted. So a lot's happened, but um, quite a lot to be done. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Dr. Peter Goadsby. We've been talking about occipital nerve stimulation to relieve cluster headaches. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars, and you've been listening to a special segment focused on neurology on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thanks for listening.